0: Here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio. And you seem like a friend to me.
1: Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. man. Hello. It's 27 5, 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM.
0: 1420,
1: 3XY, how are you? it's 9 after 6 with Lee Simon. It's 18 to 6, 3DB with Keith McGahn. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. Here each evening, 7 through to 10 on our Big Sam show. <laughs> Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm
0: Pete. Okay, the time is 22 before
1: 9, 1270 SM with the Mackerel in the morning.
0: Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest was a loyal Taswegian who returned to the airwaves in Launceston on at least half a dozen different occasions in between very successful stints on some of the country's biggest radio stations. Keith Harris was the man with the tightest board in town.
1: Please explain.
0: We'll get to that later on, Pauline. And a radio CV that would be the envy of many.
1: What a wonderful place to be living in. What a marvellous
0: place to be. Launceston is the city for fun. A swinging town for anyone. It's great to live with
1: Action Radio. The exciting sound just fun. 24 hours a day, everything's A-OK. Launceston's right on
0: the line. Hey Keith Harris, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you Paul. been a long time since uh, that, that, since I've done an interview so uh, let's hope this all goes as expected.
0: Now Keith, Queechy High School in Launceston seems to be a good starting point. What were some of the reoccurring words on that Keith Harris report card over the years and how did you perform at school?
1: Well... <laughs> I have to be really honest here, you know, some of the closing words were, I remember, uh, and, and quite a lot of my friends are, are aware of this, that uh, one of the most important statements was, uh, was the uh, DCM or DCB, don't come back. Um, the, the report card was pretty devastating, actually, considering what I do for a crust these days. Um, I, I remember I was, a, a, you know, somewhat of a Rhodes Scholar in French. Uh, I really loved the French language. Uh, but when it came to math, I had that magnificent six out of, one out of ten, that was six out of a hundred. It's pretty disgraceful when you consider what I do these days, which is all totally math dependent. So
0: what was life like in Lonnie for a teenager in the early 60s?
1: Oh, it was fantastic. You know, there was you know always good, fun things to do. Life was very very free and easy um i had uh, i had a friend a, a, a very close friend uh whose father managed a farm property uh just up behind our house and uh, i used to spend so much time on the farm going out with the horse and cart and camping out over the weekends and doing a bit of roo shooting in those days and all that sort of stuff so as a kid i mean i had an absolutely brilliant life brilliant childhood.
0: So radio-wise, where were your allegiances in those early days? 7LA or 70X? And who in particular were you listening to?
1: Uh, 70X, absolutely. I mean, I, I believe I held the record for the most returns to 70X. I think Rod Muir, my old friend Roddy, uh, he I think he had seven returns to 70X uh, in various capacities. Uh, but I actually i was determined to outdo that, that I actually had, Eight returns for seventy x, but yes, on the final, um, you know, crucifixion, if you want, on my last uh, stint at seventy x, I crossed the road to seven la and gave them a little bit of a, a comeuppance.
0: Now you eventually end up at seventy x for your first radio gig, and what was it like working in your hometown?
1: Um, well, that first job came about, in actual fact, uh, via the sale of a car. I bought a brand new, brand new car and because i was a bit a you know somewhat of a bit of a a lead foot in those days i i loved the car so much i thought if i don't sell this thing i'm going to end up destroying it so i sold it and as it turns out uh wayne brown who was then at 70x he used to do uh uh, saturday sport and things like that and he was also a, a salesperson he bought the car but he failed to change the registration of it, and so and after I kept on getting all these parking tickets, you know, they never amounted to much, you know, they're like two and six or something like that in those days. Um, after so many of these parking tickets kept lobbying, I thought, the only way to fix this is I'll go up in front me. And so it was a Saturday morning. He was on air. I wandered up, walked past uh, reception. Uh, and the young lady that was on reception at the time to this day is still a very close friend of mine, she's a lovely lady, um, walked past her down the corridor, straight into the studio, Brownie was on the air, and I stopped and waited until he finished talking. And anyway, uh, he said, you know, who are you? And I said, I'm Keith Harris. I'm the guy you bought that car from. And I'm here to tell you, you really do need to change the registration on it because I'm sick of your parking tickets. Gave him a handful of them. (laughs) And I stayed there for a little bit and I said to him, I said, I reckon I could do this. And he said, well, why don't you hang around? He said, until I finish. He said, and we'll give you a voice test. And so it went from there. I went into the, you know, the adjoining studio with him afterwards. And uh, he got me to read a few commercials and pretend I was doing some back announcements and stuff. And he said, you know what? He said, I think you possibly could do this. And that's where it all started. So between Brownie and Kerry Peck, who amazingly is still in radio. God, I would have thought he would have found another job by now uh, or another life. you know, it, they looked after me and, you know, kept me, you know, in the right condition all the way through. And and that's where it all started. Now, you were obviously looking for some
0: adventure because the next two appointments were in Perth and in Newcastle in fairly quick succession.
1: Yeah, I went to Perth in 67. Um That was my first stint in Perth at (laughs) 6PR. I'll never forget that. Keith McGowan was the program director at the time. And you've got to believe who the librarian was. Cherie Romero. Lovely, lovely young lady. And uh, look what she did. She went on to really big and wonderful things, which was great news. But anyway, the Keith McGowan story was Keith McGowan was... It it was a bit of a terror to actually work with, you know, because I had to do all sorts of stuff. Originally, I started doing afternoons. Uh, That wasn't working out. So then they had me doing a bit of stuff for uh, six, uh, what was the other stations that they had? Six TZ and six ZI down in Bunbury. So they had me doing... Bits and bits and pieces, and reading news. News, and McGowan would always come in with his motorbike helmet on, uh, and with a fan, and blow all my news scripts away off the off the desk. You know, like, what could you do? So finally, they let me back on the air again. And he said, "Well, we can't have two Keiths." And he had that little lisp, you know. he said, we can't have two Keiths. And uh, and I said, "Well, that's fine. You you just be Keith McGowan, and I'll be Big Keith. How's that?" <laughs> and that's the 6PR story which never lasted all that long so i very quickly went back east again uh, back to 70x and then i went to uh, 3cb in central victoria and i can't remember where i went after that i mean it's i spent so much time working around the countryside the only places i haven't worked um south australia or adelaide and um and the northern territory never had the desire to actually
0: more music more
1: music 2sm so your arrival
0: at 2sm in sydney was just after a program manager by the name of rod muir returned from the us and basically overhauled the presentation and programming of the station were the muir innovations immediately accepted with enthusiasm or was there some hesitation in some quarters
1: no no it, it was uh... Be to- totally enthusiastic uh, reception for by all and sundry that were working with Ron at at the time. Um I mean, it, it was it had to be tight and bright and all that sort of stuff. And the old but if you know, if you got nothing to say, shut up and let the music do the talking. That was one of the things he kept on saying to me. He he, he also tried to get me out of my shell because I was always you know I, I always played it very very close to the chest um and so he got me to do a lot of fake interviews he'd send me down down the streets down george street uh with a microphone and a recorder and get me to do interviews about qantas or interviews about whatever just to get me going uh you know on, on different ways of doing radio and it ended up that he had me doing a lot of pop stuff uh on the air when i finally ended up doing mornings
0: so what were some of the rod muir initiatives that were so radical for the time
1: um I, I, I guess it was that that really tight, more music format. You know, it really was just keep that music flowing as, as tight as you can. And as I say, if you had nothing to say, then don't bother saying it. You know, quick time call, 2SM, I'm Keith Harris, boom. Off in, off into the commercial package and out the back of that, you'd have the, the jingle that would come on and go, Keith Harris <laughs> is here to play more music. And away you'd go again with another you know, 15-minute sweep or something like that before you hit your next break. So,
0: Keith, after 2SM, you held down a number of managerial roles at various stations. So what lessons did you learn from Rod Muir that you took with you and used as a manager yourself?
1: First of all, the, the benefit of uh, of getting the team to work as a team, I suppose that would be the, the biggest thing. Uh, one of Rod's big thing was these, you know, the weekly jocks meetings. Uh, And he also, he he was an absolute terror for the air check thing where he would uh, take you to pieces if you weren't actually following the format as it should have been followed. Uh, I I guess I emulated or imitated uh, what he was doing with my first stint when I went back to 70X as program director. And from that, I, I learned a hell of a lot because you could see that You had to work with the individual more than just, you know, this is a blanket thing, you know, some people weren't capable of doing everything you wanted so had to find new ways to do it and so after leaving 70 X and then going through 2 double C in Canberra. Uh, a few years there under Nick Irby. Nick was a very hard taskmaster as well, but he taught me a hell of a lot. It, it was a way of of softening up the strictness of the the Muir format. And then uh, from there, I went back to 2NX in Newcastle. Um, and when i got to 2nx it was a totally different thing because i had david jones doing breakfast he was formerly program director at uh, 3xy in melbourne and because they gave me carte blanche and let me do and rule the roost at uh, 2nx i realized very very quickly that it wasn't about me it was it was about that whole team you know it was The weekly jocks meetings where we truly sat down and shared our experiences and we worked out how we were going to run a promotion, you know, so that it worked for all of the various individuals like David Jones would approach it one way, Darry Rogers would do it another way, and Andy Simpson. You know, you you had to mold it around the personalities at the time, and at the same time work with the scheduling staff and the news guys and the whole. So it was a really big team effort, and that's something that I never, ever experienced in the Muir days. That's something basically I think I built personally at 2NX.
0: So, just rewinding back to 1970 for a minute, 2SM is gaining momentum playing the hits on high rotation, etc., when in May, the pay-for-play dispute between radio stations and the six largest record labels came to a head. What do you remember about that time, and how significantly did the ban affect the station's game plan?
1: Um, I don't think it really affected it all that much, you know, we... um, uh we you know we played a bit of fable stuff um but uh, i i seem to recall and correct me if, you, if i'm wrong here but i seem to recall we did a hell of a lot of british stuff like we'd have the british coming weekends and 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 all that sort of sort of thing there was a, a bit of a, an anti-australian thing and i think it was after that uh that uh, ronnie tudor's fable records came along and we the attitude softened somewhat and uh, we just got back on to you know doing the business the way the business had to be done.
0: So you left 2SM in 1970. Did you have a sense at the time that the station was on track for that sustained period of incredible success that it was to experience through the rest of the 70s?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It had it had nowhere to go except to greater heights. Uh, that was expanded. It was actually around about 71, I think, when I left 2SM um, that time. Um, so... You know, they, they they could go nowhere, but to even greater heights. You know, we had the internal workings of uh, what was called Digamay. Digamay was doing all kinds of things. So all of the team at 2SM at the time had a shareholding in, in Digamay Productions. So we did, you know, amazing um, uh, it, things like the history of rock and roll and all that, which was aired Australia wide. Uh, 2SM went on then to qu- acquire other radio stations including, you know, 4AO in Brisbane, or better known as 4IP, 3XY in Melbourne at a later date. So, no, it was always going to be a huge radio station, but then FM came along and, whoops, there goes another one.
0: <laughs> More music, Radio 6 ky one So it's back to Launceston and 70X for a short time, as you tended to do, and then off again to Perth, firstly at 6KY as music director, then on to 6PM. Now, that roster at 6KY was fairly handy in the early 70s with the likes of Graham Cherry, Greg Smith, Peter Harrison, and a jock by the name of Dennis Cometti.
1: Absolutely. And Alan Aitken was there too. And um, over the time, Keith, Smith's, uh, uh, Keith Williams was there. Wally Williams, he was there. Wally's now um, head of RCS in Australia. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty healthy jock line up at the time. Um, so I stayed there and played there and we finally moved to Mount Yokine and it was after that Mount Yokine move into the Channel Line building that it all came unstuck for me because you know, of the length of air shifts and there's one hell of a story that goes on behind that but uh, I don't know that you really want to delve into that one. <laughs>
0: So the music director leaves 6KY and lands at the rival 6pm. Was that a defection or just a natural career move?
1: Um, it it say I guess it was a natural career move in, in some ways. I wasn't there as a, as a full-time uh, employee. I was, they just, uh, Brendan Sheedy, who was program director at the time, he called me up and got me to come over and do some fill-in shifts, to voiceovers and, and bits and pieces like that. Uh, because at that time I was actually committed to a full-time drive at Clermont Speedway, so I was fully really sponsored, uh, racing every Friday night and during the week you'd do a little bit of work on the car and basically uh, work a couple of night uh, nightclub club, club gigs. I can't even talk straight. A couple of night gu- club <laughs> take 744 nightclub gigs. <laughs> Next, you're going to ask me if I if I ever had trouble with any, any words.
0: Yeah, don't worry, Keith. That one will come later on. Hey, listen. Speaking of career moves, you mentioned your station manager at six pm at the time, Brendan Sheedy. He now decides to make the move back to his hometown of Melbourne and basically take half of Perth with him to DB Music. What was the Sheedy sell to get you across, and what was your brief at the revamped station?
1: Uh, Brendan called me up uh, and said, "Keith, I'd like you to come in and have a chat." So I. Wanted him, had a chat with him in Subiaco in his office, and he said, look, well, Keith, I've accepted the role as uh, general manager of uh, 3DB in Melbourne, and uh, I'd like you to come with me as as my music director. And I said, oh, okay. So we talked about money and transport and all that, all that sort of stuff. It wasn't a, he didn't have to do a hard sell, uh, because living in Perth at the time, it, it was a bit of a, a hard yakka thing for me, because I, I was, missing family and all that sort of stuff. You were basically on the other side of the world, you know. It's a lovely place, but it's basically the other side of the world. And initially, you get referred to as an eastern stater, but you swallow that pill and get on with it. So when she's uh, made the offer, I just grabbed it with both hands and went home and told my then partner, I said, look, we're moving back to Melbourne, so uh, let's pack it up and uh, get on with it. So next came that long drive across the desert. <laughs> Story and that one too.
0: So, Keith, after you eventually made that trip across the Nullarbor, how were the Perth rebels welcomed by the conservative 3DB family?
1: Well, in, in, initially it was, a, it, it was a little bit it's standoffish. It's like, you know, who are these long-haired renegades that uh, this sheedy character has, has brought into the building, you know? Um but I mean, that, that quickly quietened down as we went about doing what we needed to do. I mean, I, I guess there were always some there that were a little bit put out by the types of things that uh, we were doing or, or that we did. Uh, but basically, it, w- it was a great experience to take a radio station that had such a heavy sport focus and was sort of really in the lost in the fog somewhere of what radio really could be. And uh, we took that sheet. we took that from a, a 3.2, I think it was, to a 13.6 high. Uh, it, they were great times. They were great times.
0: Now, there was some fairly strong competition for bragging rights in the late afternoon slot with Alan Lapin on 3UZ, Tony Hartney on KZ, and of course Greg Evans on 3XY. What do you believe was your station's point of difference?
1: I think the, the music was the real point of difference because whilst they were in the case of 3XY, they were slightly more edgy rock and roll radio station uh, and the others were still doing all their bits and pieces in you know, a lap lap on the greater <laughs> you know lap lap was great he, he was fantastic I mean he he was a personality in his own right and it, it it was just good fun I used to listen to lap lap you know back when I was growing up um but the point of difference for us really was the music because we had that that disco edge that's that's what we introduced you know that you know things like um, um i'm trying to think of you know we had dorothy moore and um uh, the silvers and, and all that type of thing it's really hard to remember some of those bands because they were pretty much here today and gone to Morister.
0: now keith i think it was just after you left db that rick melbourne ted bull ron o'neill and robert hicks all jumped ship and headed towards the cross-town rival at 3KZ. So, what did you think of the mass defection when you heard about it? And uh, were you ever invited to join them as well?
1: No, no, not at all. Uh, I think from memory, when they uh, when they all packed up their goodies and, and and crossed town, I I think from memory I I'd already left. I had a, a a bit of a dispute over what we should and shouldn't play and all that sort of stuff. And Sheeds and I decided parting was the only thing we should do. So I went my way and it, it was almost hot on the heels of my departure that the that the boys went, okay, well, we're packing up our goodies and we're out of here too. And so everyone crossed town.
0: The morning's not that clear anymore. The sunshine's not that near anymore. But I know how to warm my day. Sing and dance like a music play. Music, radio, two double speed again back to System for a quick spell then three years as program director at two double c in canberra so how did you find working in the nation's capital with a fairly transient population compared to the other capital cities
1: you'd worked in apart from being transient it was a very class conscious city and it probably still is and i think that's because of the uh the multi-level uh and um uh, what do you call a public service community that lives there. That's that's where that transient nature comes from. People coming from all other public service units all over the place, going through the Canberra experience. But it it really was, um, you know, what I mean. It's that they just didn't communicate at different levels. So the the radio station was probably the the thing that held that whole thing together. We did lots of uh, outdoor promotional stuff in, in the 2 double C days. And that that brought those people from the different levels down to that one level where they'd come and join us for a barbecue or whatever and and, and, and things like that. And they were good days, good days at double C.
0: Now, although 2 double C was a fairly new station when you arrived, it soon found its niche and dominated the airwaves, leaving the well-established 2CA in its wake. So, what was the magic formula there that was so successful?
1: Well, Nick Herby was the uh, the uh, general manager and hard taskmaster. Rob Mackay was his original program director, and it was Rob that actually got the station up to where it was, uh, which was a bit of a daunting thing for me when when they invited me to come on board to replace Rob. Uh, because he'd done such a fine job of building this radio station, which was just at that point of going, you know, getting a little bit tired. They'd owned the market uh, for quite a while at that stage. Uh, I came on board, and, and the task was to try and keep in place the audience that we'd built and the uh, the uh, uh, you know the familiarity with the radio station and all, all that sort of stuff, yet. You're taking it through new, a new music uh, era, era, uh, era, a new music era. Um, so it was, um, yeah, a, a little bit trying at times. The we lost our share a little bit. Uh, I think remember we fell. At worst, we fell from around about a 36 share. I think is when Rob MacKay's last uh at one point i think we got to a 36 sevens or 38 something like that uh but then we settled back down to around about a 32.5 share or something like that by the time i left uh when was that 19 well, i don't know 1980 1981 i can't remember it yeah, must have been 1981 yeah three years
0: two annex in newcastle and then from the outside A very bold and courageous move back to 2SM at a time when FM radio was fast becoming the preferred choice of listeners. Now, I'm sure it wasn't easy being the group project director for 2SM and other AM stations in the mid to late 80s.
1: No, it wasn't an an easy task. Um, You know, after seven very, very successful years at 2NX ruling the shop uh, and then being appointed group program director of 2SM, uh, one of the things that had happened, a uh, predecessor of mine as, as program director at 2SM, was ex-the Jays, and he brought on board all these people from the Jays. We we had um, uh, Dano and, and Jono. Uh, we had them. We had Club Vege. Uh, we had Angela Katerns. There were just so many people that were, Former Jays and, and 2SM had basically it had lost its way. It was, you know, 2SM had a history of being, you know, there for the for the masses. Um, no pun intended, but um the the, the history of being there for the masses and not for the the acutely oriented uh, or acutely musically oriented uh the listeners, which is what was coming through with um all these new presenters so garvin rutherford uh, when he appointed me uh, group program director the first things he said to me when we sat down on the eighth floor he said keith i want you to clean this act up and i said so how far do you want me to go with this and he said keith i'm leaving it to you you know what you're doing just clean it up um and that was the the task that i was set uh, I got in amongst it. I, without cutting anyone's throat or doing any of that sort of stuff, because I was never a liker of that. Um, the first thing was to formatically change what they were doing musically and how they're presenting it, without taking away too much of what you know th- that little rebel in all of them that there was. Um, and so that did work, and then it did slip, and then it did start to work again, and then it did slip. And at the end, there was you know a bit of a revolt going on, and so it really did have to get to the nasty end of it. never enjoyed that, but um, that was pretty much it. So during those years, I was living basically out of a suitcase, still living in Newcastle. So I'd get home on the weekends, but if I wasn't in Sydney, I'd be in Brisbane, or I'd be back in Newcastle, or up in Busselbrook, or... You know, working on what we should be doing with uh, 3XY and Melbourne and all that sort of stuff. So, very, 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 very busy days. And then, of course, along came that unforgettable meeting with uh, Father Jim McLaren, uh, who came and sat in my office one day, just prior to the board meeting, up in the green room on the eighth floor. And he sat there and he asked that question that was, uh, Keith, I need, I need your honest answer here. Do we really need a group program director? To which I gave him my honest answer, and I said, no. He said, Keith, we're talking about your your job here. I said, yes, I know. I said, so if you want to continue, as long as you want to keep on putting um, me up in, you know, first-class hotels and flying me first-class all over the paddock, I'm quite happy to continue doing that. But I'm telling you now, no, you don't need a group program director to which he said, thank me for my honesty, and he went back to the boardman.
0: <laughs> One might say a rather courageous answer. Now, was it the right move for the station to go light and easy after the top 40 formation ran out of
1: steam? At the time, yes. I mean, I've always been a firm believer in market research, but depending on how you do that research, I preferred the call-out research uh, to the focus groups. But... Um, we owned an internal market research company, um, and they did a lot of focus groups around this whole thing. So behind the scenes, I was working closely with Garvin Rutherford and uh, the production team, and I, we were putting together uh, mock-ups of different formatic structures that we could potentially take, you know, 2SM down the path of, given the what was happening with uh, FM radio just wiping the board with us. So... Um, I was the I was the voice behind the music and the different styles of presentation and the whole thing. So, there were fun things to do in actual fact, but the research came out overwhelmingly that it was that light and easy format. That was that Billy Joel's, you know, Uptown Girl, Whitney Houston, all that type of stuff. But take the rock edge out of it, you know, keep it nice and up tempo, uh, but take the rock edge out of it. The name light and easy i think i think that name came from george pats uh, they were the advertising agency at the time um, and so um, you know the, the board committed to the the changes there and that of course brought about a big change in personalities in the radio station and that that then flowed on to uh, what was stereo 10 in brisbane uh, and down in melbourne at 3xy of course um, Paul Ramsden took the other road, which was uh, Gentle Rock, which in hindsight was probably the far better tack that we should have taken. But it didn't research uh, for Sydney. So, you know, you, you, you can only take so much out of research. Sometimes you've really got to go with your gut feel. But uh, we missed that one.
0: So in terms of 4IP, 3XY and 2SM, how sad is it to see a station that was on the top of its game in the 70s almost become obsolete by the end of the 80s? yeah
1: yeah it, it it is because they meant so much to so many for such a long time i mean they were great radio stations i mean 3xy wasn't a mirror image of uh 2sm but it, it was it was close that you know they had that their, their melbourne way of approaching that under dick hemming at the time who was program director a lovely guy um sm of course its own inimitable fashion and um Four IP, of course. Four IP was always pretty much the the odd one out. But they were doing they were doing what was Brisbane at that time, you know, you know McGurvin in the morning and all that type of stuff, doing some really wild stuff. Um, but when they became Stereo Ten, my feeling was that they 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 just lost it. They went off on their own little tangent without taking into consideration what the audience expected. They were trying to be a, a rocky little uh, FM station uh, without the the frequency to actually get in there and mix it with them.
0: Okay, Keith, time now to help me out with this one. What does the tightest board in town mean?
1: <laughs> that that You've been talking to Ted Bull. Uh, I, I, I think that originated from Teddy Bull because he always used to stir me up be at a jocks meeting or or whatever uh it's uh here he comes again the man with the tightest board in town so what it really meant was there were never any gaps i mean you went from the commercial the the, uh, the jingle started the up underneath the tail of the commercial and the the first beats of the record started to butt up under the the end of the uh, you know the jingle and all that sort of stuff and you you know you talked over the intro all the way up to the very first word of the song so you know he coined the phrase you know titus brought him down
0: now you and ted tended to end up at the same stations every now and again anything about ted bull that we should know about
1: well ted was never uh, ted wasn't raised on rock and roll i think that's probably the difference you know ted was raised on other things ted was a big personality you know if he if he could talk he would he would want to talk you know and you know, Ted did his own thing. We, we were all very different styles of personalities.
0: Of course, Ted at DB Music was famous for the caftan, a little bit of incense burning in the background, and, of course, also demanding that he has a fish tank in the studio as well. And we had the
1: shark. We had a shark in the tank. And I, I think I think that was Rick who wanted a shark in the tank. He just wanted to see if it had eat Ted's goldfish or whatever it was. So, yeah, a lot of to and fro going on there. But uh, I guess Ted never ever told you about the day he invited my then wife uh, over to his place in Melbourne for dinner, and he set fire to the kitchen.
0: <laughs> well, he definitely didn't, Keith, but worth exploring at some stage, I'm sure. Now, you have obviously diversified your interests post-radio. Can you firstly tell us about Fred Innovations?
1: Yeah, I I can tell you about Fred Innovations. So more recent times, um, 4IP or Stereo 10, they had a Fred. and uh, We won't go into what it really stood for, but uh, anyone in the industry knows what it stood for. Um, When I was appointed general manager of uh, Light and Easy 1008 or Stereo 10 or 4IP and all those names, um, I actually did did some mid-dawns because I wanted to play with their Fred. Uh, and I got it working the same way as I did when I first experienced it. 70X had a Fred, uh, but they they just gave up on their Fred. They could never master the art. Where I got the opportunity to really master what you could do with a Fred um, was at 7LA, and that was uh, thanks to absolutely brilliant man Rex McLean, who was the chief engineer at the time. Um, and I remember sitting with uh, with Rex. I was going to say sitting with Fred. It never spoke <laughs> uh sitting with Rex McLean and talking to, to to Rex and asking about you know what are the mechanics of this this thing I, I want to know all about it and he explained to me you know they used to run on a, on a little tape about a about upwards of an inch wide and it was just like a Braille tape, but it was what was sending messages to the machine as to you know uh, which turnstiles ran and which carts had pulled in or dropped out and did all that sort of what what tapes had ran at, at a given point in time, when it triggered a time call or a, or a jingle or whatever the situation. And he got onto the subject of EOMs. Now, an EOM was an end of message uh, signal. So what happened was the way it was being used at the time was um, a a commercial would be, just on its closing stage, and the EOM uh, button would be triggered to fire the next message in the machine. Now, all of this is pre recorded on this tape, so it's controlling the EOMs. So the start of the EOM triggered the next event, uh, and the EOM just dropped off and left the event running. And on the end of that next event, there'd be another EOM which would tra- trigger the next event. So the stage I got to with Rex was I said, so what happens if, for instance, a jingle is playing and the jingles OEM runs, which triggers the next event, let's say that next event is me, but immediately I start talking, I trigger the next event, which is the music. And if I hang on to that EOM until I'm finished talking, will the music continue to play? while I'm talking over the lead up and he said well yes both events will play at the same time he said but that's never been tried I said let's get on with it and that's when we started to do that so in the end I was doing a, a Sunday morning program or on Seven 7th and I'd have People like Mrs. Dumanough, who was my cleaner at the time, she'd come in and make comments about things. I'd cross to the Weather Bureau and talk backwards and forwards with the Weather Bureau and all that sort of stuff and still talk over the records and and do the whole deal. And all of that was done with that fine-tuned management of the end-of-message system to the point that uh, Brendan Chee tried to call me when I was doing a sunday morning shift at one time don't need to be told with the panel upper that i was more than likely still at home in bed and she's declared no no, no he's, he's on the air i'm listening to him he's just talking to the weather guy and they said no 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 he's, he's actually home in fred this is in bed he's this this it's fred that's playing that
0: <laughs> so what other work has your company travel partners been involved in over the past 20 years
1: um we're well, developing a system that is based on everything that a travel agency needs, it's very much, uh, it's CRM oriented, it's very heavily uh, accounting oriented, uh, and it manages absolutely everything that today's travel agent and tomorrow's travel agent needs from, you know, scheduling of air travel to do, uh, do, you know, creating itineraries, um, invoicing, that whole thing and and retaining complete histories, and of course, all of this up in the cloud. Ours was one of the first uh, travel industry products to go to the cloud back in 2005, believe it or not, when people were still saying, oh, nobody will want to have their accounting records up in the cloud. Oh, no. Well, I did it and every client that was still with me at that time, which my very first client from 2000 is still with me to this day, as are most of those early clients. they, without hesitation, signed on and said, yes, we're going with you. We trust you. So this is all
0: coming from a boy that got six out of 100 for maths all those years ago?
1: It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing when you think of it. Um, But I think you learn more from the school of hard knocks. I think the six out of 100, if we were to look back at how that score came about, it was understanding the rudiments of math and, and how it could be applied, but not being able to see at that time because I didn't want to see. All I ever wanted to be back in those days was a milkman. Um, so, you know, not being able to see how I could possibly use math. Why, why would I, what use would that, would, would that be to me? But over the years, you could, you know, you gradually grew into how it has to be used, why it's used and all that sort of stuff. And it comes out to today, I, you know, I'm quite competent with, uh, with my numbers. Sometimes I have to say to clients, you know, I have to be really honest about, you know, what part of one and one doesn't make three for you, but um, otherwise it's all good.
0: <laughs> and finally, Keith, for all those who think that you are, in fact, a travel agent, where's your favourite overseas destination?
1: I uh, would have to be Canada. Um, been to Canada now, I think it's 14 or 15 times I've been to Canada. Uh, my wife is a, a real snow bunny, a, a, Absolutely brilliant skier. I haven't been back now for it's three years. So just before before the onset of COVID, uh, my wife was over there by herself uh, on an eight week stint, and she had a really bad fall and broke a leg. So she hasn't been back and hoping to go next year. We owned a property there at uh, Sun Peaks at uh, at the at the lodge. So. Um, that, that, that was lovely. I used to look forward going back there because it was like going to my my other home, you know, big hugs from all the people that uh, that were there. Now the Canadian people are lovely. So, that yeah, that is one of my favourite destinations of all time, apart from going back home to Tasmania. OK, Keith, I think
0: you know the drill. I've got a dozen or so questions that we ask all our guests, with the first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died?
1: I was still a two double C Canberra then. Um, so, not that I can remember clearly, but um, I would imagine we would have done a, a big um, uh, Lennon weekend at the time. How about that last concert ticket you paid for? I've only ever paid for one concert ticket in my whole, whole life, and it's Pretty much the go for anyone who spent as long in radio as I did at the time. And that one concert ticket, uh, that was Guy Sebastian, believe it or not. My wife is a really huge fan of his. I don't mind what he does, but uh, not exactly my cup of tea, I suppose, is want me way to put it.
0: Keith, is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? Rolling Stones.
1: <laughs> Quite a story. The Stones were in Perth, I think it was 71, 72-ish. Well, it might have been 72 in actual fact I, I was at 6ky at the time so it would have to be 72 on the second return to perth uh i remember going out with the, some of the guys from the station and we you know, you know had the old ting tour or two pre-concert uh the stones were on at the wacker and uh, unfortunately i decided to have it lay down on the lawn outside the Wacker pre-concert and uh, woke up after the concert was over so yes i missed the stones
0: moral there is don't get whackered at the whacker. obviously the word you had most trouble pronouncing on air
1: Uh, apart from the ones i had most trouble pronouncing uh, in this interview (laughs) i i really i honestly can't recall having a lot of trouble pronouncing words when i was on the air um because i never ever really went into really long, drawn-out speech-type things. I always kept it, you know, really, really tight. So you never got the opportunity to have trouble saying, pronouncing a particular word, but um, these days I have plenty of trouble.
0: <laughs> Keith, was there ever an incident that had you thinking that you might get those Don't Come Monday orders?
1: Well, apart from uh, falling asleep on the air, that was back in the 70X days. I did get a Don't Come Monday out of that one, but I was back on Tuesday. Yeah. Um, so that that one was OK, but I guess the the hottest one, which uh, some would remember is when I was doing mornings at 2SM and there was an incident uh, where the telcos or the Telstra boys, as they were at the time, uh, were out at um, near the transmitter site and they were working on whatever they were working on and somehow got crossed up over our broadcast lines. And um, there was a bit of colourful language that went to air on 2SM, which wasn't appreciated by anyone, and there were questions uh, a, a plenty that rolled around that. How did I allow that to happen? But I had absolutely no control of it. It, it just, it just went to air. Skyhooks or Sherbet? Sherbet, absolutely. I mean, I, Skyhooks are great. Skyhooks were great, but um, no, definitely Sherbet. They, they just did better things you know well for me musically they they were a, a tidier act the rolling stones or the beatles beatles every time still love the stones but yeah beatles all the time pretty much for the same reasons um you know nice little toe tapping tunes as teddy would have said another toe tapper um they, they they were very melodic and and they did some fantastic stuff yeah beatles
0: Keith, your most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days.
1: I wish I'd kept more of the memorabilia from my radio days. I've, nev- I've never been a big collector. Um, I look at it, it's hard to say. I, I think these days it's probably a photo of uh, Michael Jackson with my uh, ex wife and, and my children, which was at the Regent Hotel in the Rocks at, Sid- at Sydney after the Thriller concert. Uh, we were invited to come back to uh, a, a a special uh, get-together. And uh, I'll never forget the, the look on my children's face, you know, the tugging on the pants when I was trying to have a quiet drink and a chat. And you get this, you know, look down, it's my daughter saying, Dad, Dad, look, it's Michael. <laughs> the biggest
0: news story that broke while you were on air?
1: Probably the ugliest news story when I was on the air was... Uh, surrounded the Vietnam War my brother who was uh, he wasn't a conscript he was regular army Uh, he was best buddies with a guy that was always posted at the same places within they they shared sleeping quarters together they did absolutely everything together and he was a lovely guy he used to come visit our home and uh, in Launceston at the time um and I, I remember I was, only, I was actually reading a news service, which, you know, back in those days at 70X, you not only, you know, played the music, you actually read the news as well. Um, and I actually, the lead story was about the loss of some of our Australian troops in a, uh, a landmine explosion, which blew up a truck. Um, and one of those people was my brother's best mate. So it was a hard call to a hard one to read that one
0: absolutely the moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck
1: don't know that i've ever been totally starstruck as such i remember many times graham kennedy walking into the studio when he was about to go on air with uh dennis scanlon but um you know, they, they, they weren't exactly starstruck moments, but I, I think probably one of the most unforgettable moments of, of uh, you know, being on air with somebody was um, uh, was with um, Edna Everidge. <laughs> and that was at 70X. It was just an hilarious, hilarious event. It was just unforgettable piece of radio. I could imagine.
0: Best words of advice from a program manager...
1: The credit, once again, has to go back to uh, Rock and Roddy or as we used to call him, Moo. Um, It's just, you know, if you've got nothing to say, shut up and let the music do it. Let the music do the talking.
0: And finally, Keith, are there two albums that you would consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years?
1: Well, I've only ever bought one album, believe it or not, and I have a collection down in my garage at the moment of some of the best-kept vinyl of all time, most of which have never, ever been on the turntable, I have to say. I will find a home for them one day. Uh, If anyone wants them, okay, just give me a call. Um, But the only record I ever, ever purchased was Hitsville, USA. But at the same time, at the same time, I was always a huge fan of James Brown.
0: Hey, nice choice with James Brown, but I think I'll take a rain check on the old Hitsville, USA. Hey, Keith Harris, that has been a very full, diverse, and successful radio career, and it's just been great reminiscing with you on Pilots. Thank you so much for your time today, and continued success in the current phase of your work life.
1: Okay, Paul, thank you so much for your
0: time. Keith Harris on Pilots of the Airwaves.